You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, it was a very somber Hawaii Mayor Harry Kim who shared that another person from the veterans' home in Hilo has died. We spoke with him from the Emergency Operations Center. Today's update of COVID-19, the number of new active cases in Hawaii Island reported and monitored by Department of Health is six. At this date, for Hawaii Island, eight are hospitalized. The Hilo Medical Center reports this morning a total of 10 deaths. Uh, you're probably the first to hear that. Again, the Hilo Medical Center reports a total of 10 deaths, all are from the Ukiyo, Utsu Veterans Home. Prayers and condolences from the island's people go out to the families. No words can express our sadness. That's the latest on that. Well, I think everybody across the state feels the loss uh, like we felt when we saw the outbreak at Maui uh, a Hospital yeah. earlier this year. It's been cause for concern. What can you tell us is being done to try and control this outbreak? The Veterans Home, just for all information, is a private contractor corporation from the mainland who does this uh, type of work and uh, they're under contract with the state government of Hawaii who well, I guess the agencies monitoring all of the health care things will be Department of Health. I think everyone knows connected including the governor medical center they are, they're quite familiar with my not just sadness frustration disappointment even anger of what is happening and uh, you know strongly requesting I can be honest and say demanding that you know we to- thoroughly review this this is as I've said just not acceptable I mean there are better words and stronger words but that I guess says it all it is not acceptable for anyone especially the families those that are there, and including the residents who are hearing all of this and uh, demanding you know, that a review be made. And right now, I understand they're coming in today. Requests have been made, as the governor will tell you, a long time ago. There's nothing I can say that will express our disappointment of what has been happening and our sadness and our fear of uh, continuation on this. We have to have a full review by experts come in and see uh, the whole situation and to see if there's anything that can be mitigated to prevent further harm. You know, that's what I'm feeling now and that's what I'm telling you now. Senator Brian Schatz was calling for the Department of Veterans Affairs to step in. He'd made some statements to the effect that he didn't think enough was being done on the local level. Well, you know, when he said that, he didn't use the word local, he said county and state, and that's where I really resent it. You know, the, first of all, I didn't get that letter was read to me. And secondly, you know, I resent the fact that uh, he makes that kind of statement without knowing what the hell has been going on. From what I understand, my phone uh, still works. I didn't get any call. If he, he talked to us, we would have pleaded with him also. I don't believe in going over people's head. I followed up, you know, the procedures uh, of protocol we were talked to, and our next, and the governor will tell you that, and the Department of Health will tell you that. So in due respect to the senator, and I do respect him, in regards to uh, his statements uh, are not totally accurate and almost insulting. So you wish he would have called you first? Well, not first, you know, but if he wants the information, the letter, I think, that was read to me says five deaths at that time. I mean, what happened between one and five? So the team is coming in today for a review? Yeah, the team is coming in today. I must... Uh, I'm assuming right now, for that matter, they will be uh, going up to begin the review. I'm not part of review because uh, I'm not uh, of any expertise of that level. Although we did, I did offer the governor, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it. Not me personally, but I'll assemble a team, but I'm glad to see this is now being done. Also at the UKO is going to be a testing of all the remaining residents as well as staff. Is it your feeling that we haven't done enough to prevent the numbers reaching 10? I don't know what is enough or more. Well, I'll answer it this way. When we first found out about it, you know, there was, uh, I think, no deaths. Just uh, uh, information passed down to us that there were two staff members that was uh, tested positive. I just assume from there on in, all the requirements of whether it be federal or state uh, would have been done. And can just imagine the disappointment of hearing two 
And now 10. And your question is, uh, do I feel more should have been done? Well, I definitely feel that a review should have been done earlier. I know there are some that are uh, putting pressure on the governor. AARP has asked for more transparency. Uh, Kokua Council took some legal action yesterday in regard to contact tracers and, you know, they're, they're trying to get a handle on whether enough is being done to help the Pacific Island community, the, the seniors in that community. There were calls for like a rapid response team for these uh, care homes and long-term care facilities. Your thoughts on any of those ideas? In regards to tracing, we have a Department of Health Administrator here, Eric Honda, work and been meeting with each other every single day since February. That means every single day, including Sundays, they're going to be housed in the same facility as the rest of the uh, people in regards to uh, those that will be tracing incoming passengers, etc., a place that we are renovating and should be finished very shortly, shortly within a day or two, and they will all be out of the same facility because this EOC just is not sized for that kind of uh, long-term follow-up strictly in regards to the, the numbers game. So we're renovating as best as we can a place called Anti-Sally's uh, County Facilities, uh, like I said, should be finished. Uh, I'm very proud of the Department of Health program here. Hawaii County is a small county, so we can operate a little differently. But over here, it's not who's in charge of this and that, just uh, one whole team. So as far as Hawaii Island, uh, I welcome anyone to take a look at what they're doing here, and I think they would be uh, very pleased with what's going on, And because I don't know what's going on in the other islands, and that's not our affairs. But in regards to what I mentioned all of this, is because you also mentioned follow-up in Pacific Islanders and those things, and you'll see what is being done here with that, so we're all with the same organization. In regards to follow-up, in regards to everything else, it's still the same organization. I think the tracing by the Department of Health uh, is really good here. Okay, and Mayor, I know you only have a couple more minutes. Anything you want to say about the situation at the Hilo prison? Well, I think that's all indicative of the, uh, the whole state, maybe the nation, maybe the world. All of us are learning from day one. The frustration and tension builds. I don't know. I got a briefing yesterday for the police, but not in regards to cause and those things, but just what's happening because police obviously is counting. And they called before, uh, while it happening, and they called uh, after it was uh, considered, you know, containing control. Uh, I don't know what it's reflected to, but I reflect it to all. That's frustration and tension being expressed there in that way. But I think this uh, same kind of anxiety is reflective all over the state in different ways. And I think we of people of authority should be well aware of that and all of us should be addressing it as best as we can and hopefully we are. Okay. All right, Mayor. Well, I know you've got to get on to uh, uh, your other meetings today. I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, thank you again. Well, you know, thank you because I tell all media, you guys are the only hope we have as far as communication. You know, one of the biggest concerns of the whole public is the lack of information or lack of transparency. So I'm thanking you because without the media, what have we got? I think our, our hopes and wishes uh, that we all get better. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. Aloha. We were talking to Mayor Harry Kim from the Emergency Operations Center just as he was about to give his daily briefing earlier today.
On our reality check today, we talk more about that disturbance at the uh, Hilo Jailhouse. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, the, you've got a couple of stories by uh, your reporter Kevin Dayton about the public safety. Right, and Kevin can't be here today. I'm sorry about that. He's actually covering the Council on Revenue's report on the latest revenue projections. Uh, but, of course, he's a Hilo boy and uh, <laughs> is reporting from there. And he has information about uh, what happened at the jail, building on what the mayor said earlier. So it was uh, inmates in the A-wing of a housing unit there at the Hilo jail, and they set fire and uh, set fires and barricaded doors. That was on Tuesday. Uh, the formal name is the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, of course. And this is the fourth outbreak uh, at a facility for prisons or jails in the state within the last month. Uh, the other three were two at OCCC here on Oahu and another one at Maui Community, uh, Maui, the, the jail on Maui as well. So this is an alarming trend. As the mayor said, we're not quite sure exactly what happened but the he alluded to frustration and anger we don't have any indication that it's covid directly that inspired but um some sort of confrontation but it, there does appear to have been a fight that might have triggered a riot and i use that word riot with quotation marks by the way that's how kevin puts it in his story but clearly fires and, and barricading doors is a serious situation right but you know uh, we hadn't seen many of those uh, prior to COVID, so you, you just got to imagine that there's some stress. Uh, <laughs> that you there know. is some, yeah, connection. Of course, what's happened at OCCC is is terrible. It's the really the hottest outbreak area in the state uh, when it comes to the situation with COVID. And of course, there was another development, and I can add more about the Hilo Jail. But maybe this is a good time to mention Kevin's other story uh, on our jails and prisons that is on our website today. And that's the governor actually appointing uh, uh, the person who's currently the paroling authority chairman, Fred Hyun, to actually be the special master over the Department of Public Safety. And, of course, DPS oversees the jails and the, pri the prisons, the sheriff's division as well. Um, and why is that so important? Well, Nolan Espinda, uh, as we all know, is now uh, stepping down. He's currently on leave, will be officially stepping down shortly uh, from that job. And of course, Espinda had come under serious fire, particularly from two of the unions whose employees work in the jails and prisons, uh, that the situation has been mishandled. And that's a serious concern that Mr. Hewn will be looking into. Right. And public safety has been an, under a lot of pressure. Uh, lots mm. of community groups concerned about if there is yeah. an outbreak there, that it will just spread like wildfire. And we are seeing all these positive cases uh, of COVID uh, at those facilities. Right. And of course, earlier you were talking, Mayor Kim, about what's going on with the nursing facility, the senior home there in Hilo, too. Remember that, boy, I don't know how many times Civil Beat has reported on the problems with overcrowding in our jails and prisons, particularly OCCC. But the same is that the case with HCCC, the Hilo jail. There has been overcrowded crowding in that facility for years. Um, we can tell you, by the way, that inv investigation uh, is ongoing. They are uh, evaluating the health status of the staff and the inmates. They're assessing the damages being done. At, at least 25 inmates are to be questioned. And, and if they're found guilty, they will be facing criminal administrative charges. Uh, and also from Kevin's reporting, there was actually an evacuation of some of the facility and they had to shut down the surrounding streets there. But this goes to the core question that has been the core issue, really, that has been confronting us with our jails and prisons for decades. We have too many people in there. The facilities, many of them are too old. Um, they are just not modern. You have, in some cases, three people to a cell. And boy, talk about, uh, you know, being conducive to spreading COVID. It's just a, a very difficult situation. Yes, you know, we've covered many a hearing, you and I, uh, about yes. that overcrowding situation. You know, three where there really should be, you know, two in, in a cell. So, yeah, it's not a good situation. You don't want uh, uh, federal oversight. You don't want uh, the feds to come in because, uh, you know, of uh, civil rights issues. Uh, so something's got to get done. Right. And just to add, nor do you want just to cover up the issue that's happening now. And we are hopeful, many advocates for prison reform, criminal justice reform, is that something will come out of the special master 
watching the prisons and jails, uh, I can tell you another nod to Mayor Kim. Yes, the media will be there and we will be providing as much transparency and reporting as we can. Nice to hear a public official say something nice about the media, huh, Catherine? Yes. All right. We're not the enemy. All right. No, we are not the enemy. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Kevin Dayton's stories, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual open house this Sunday. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Much of Generation Z will vote for the first time in November, and they're not afraid to tell you where they stand. When the Democratic Party coalesced around Joe Biden, I remember um, unregistering from the Democratic Party that day. We hear from three Gen Z voters in Los Angeles about the issues that matter most to them this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4, following fresh air. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. Earlier in the hour, we heard Mayor Harry Kim talk about the need to communicate. HBR's Ashley Mazua has been looking into the health department messaging and the shortcomings and the stinging criticism from lawmakers and others in the community. Good morning, Ashley. Morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, I understand that uh, the criticism basically says that uh, the health department has missed the mark on young people and Pacific Islanders. Right. And, you know, experts I spoke with really honed in on the fact that one of the state's biggest missteps was their inability to effectively communicate with the public. And, you know, that's an issue during COVID-19 because you need to get people to you know, wear masks and stay home. And all of those things need to be communicated by the government to the public. And as you're saying, the two main demographics that were missed in state communication were young people in the Pacific Islander community. We know that young people between the ages of 18 and 29 are catching the virus faster than any other age group. And, you know, they don't go to the hospital or die at the same high rate as the older demographic, but they can spread the virus to more vulnerable populations. So, so far, Hawaii has spent about $152,000 in state funds and $250,000 from the federal government on public messaging aimed to, you know, stop COVID-19. And at the beginning, the messages were featuring people like local comedian Frank DeLima, not someone who really resonates with that 18 to 29-year-old age group. The State House of Representatives COVID-19 Committee kind of took it on their own hands and are making their own campaign now instead who Anthony is the former executive director at OEV Television, and he's one of the leaders of that project. Make it personal, and it's like, oh, no, these people were from my neighborhood. They went to the same restaurants I went to. They are grandparents or kids or moms and dads just like me. The storytelling, to me, makes it real. Obviously, this is deadly, and it is very real, but how do we make sure that people know it's real? Right, and so that's being unveiled today. And the Department of Health is also changing their messaging strategy. Most recently, they started running those survivor stories. I really tried to hit on those personal notes that Anthony was talking about. And they also use some of their federal CARES funds to hire Anthology Group, um, which is a communications um, consulting firm, who made newer ads that started in mid-August that you might have seen that had young people in it talking about wearing masks and avoiding large gatherings. The survey that Anthology Group did between April and June showed that messaging like protecting our kapuna and the call for Hawaii to come together and the need to get back to work really resonated most with younger people, which may be getting the DOH back on track now. Alice Payne Merritt is a COVID-19 communications expert at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. And she says one campaign that works really well with young people in Baltimore and other countries she's worked in is an appeal to be a hero. 
I think it takes you from your everyday life and, you know, I'm just a teacher, I'm just a student, I'm just a daily laborer, but even though we're all just regular people in our regular lives, we can be more than regular, we can be a hero. So a call to action to be a hero kind of calls upon each of us to be our best self. Who doesn't want to be a hero? And I think that's very culturally dependent. So what can you tell us about the push to reach out to the Pacific Islander community? DOH's communication issues with the Pacific Islander community are very, very different than their communication with the younger crowd. Hawaii has the highest numbers of Pacific Islanders per capita in the country, but the state's communication with them hasn't really been very effective in curbing the virus. And the main reason I was told is the lack of services available. Dr. David DeRoff, Executive Director at Kukulkalihi Valley Comprehensive Family Services, is a health center that served the community for 50 years. That's what he told me. He says a solid relationship with the Pacific Islander community is the key to good public messaging, and the messages need to be clear and actionable, which hasn't really been the case for some of DOH's most important guidance, which is to isolate at home in your own space with a private bathroom if possible if you have symptoms or are infected. I think we all know what a luxury that is to have a private bedroom and bathroom, particularly for many of the communities we're talking about here. So when someone is told that advice, their natural response would be, you clearly don't know anything about my life. Why should I listen to you? Giraff says the state needs to talk to the Pacific Islander community leaders to figure out first what services are most needed, and then those services need to be quickly created and then well-publicized. And, you know, that didn't happen, even though clusters in the community broke out as early as May. Duroff warns that the state needs to avoid stigmatizing the Pacific Islander community, and it needs to communicate in different languages, including Marshallese and Chukis. To the state's credit, they posted YouTube videos in those two languages in mid-May, but the viewership for that was pretty limited, about 1,000 views for one and 150 for the other. Tim Brown, an infectious disease expert at East West Center, said that the state maybe should first take a traditional marketing approach to the problem, which would mean identifying key populations, drafting messages to them, and then working with the members of those communities to design and then actually test the messages that would be sent out on those communities. He says one region that's done really well at this is in Portland, Oregon, part of Multnomah County. I got to speak with Virginia Luca, who's the program specialist senior for the Pacific Islander community within Multnomah County Health Department and oversees the Pacific Islander Coalition that was able to really quickly get services going during the pandemic. We provided them with a test, but we also provided them with resources. So we gave them PPE, we gave them N95 masks, we gave them printed flyers that were in different languages that told people about what is COVID, how can you protect your family. In a couple of the test sites, we even gave gift cards out to just let them know like, hey, we don't know what you're going through in your life, but here's the gift card that you can go shopping or pay a bill. Wow. Yeah, and that means in a county where only 1% of the population is Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian combined. They have a person in their health department dedicated to that community, and it shows when you look at the numbers. I mean, Pacific Islanders alone, not including Native Hawaiians, make up 4% of Hawaii's population, but they account for 31% of those infected more than any other racial group. And then meanwhile, in Multnomah County, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders combined make up just 2% of the county's COVID-19 cases. It's the second lowest for any racial group in the area. You know, I know the Department of Health has been zinged in recent audits about communication, and we would have hoped that they would have fixed that. And I know the department has asked for additional staffers, but that hasn't necessarily come through, and they've had to, you know, reach out to these private agencies to help them with the messaging. Uh, What's the impact overall when you've got missteps like this? Right. Well, I mean, it's just eroded the public's confidence in the government. And we've seen statements from officials saying that contact tracing was robust and that, you know, there was enough testing and that those who were most impacted were being helped. I mean, I can find an email from the DOH saying that communication with the Pacific Islander community wasn't an issue back in May. And, you know, a lot of that turned out to be less than true. The communications expert you have earlier, Merit, says that people putting out messages, credibility is everything, and it's going to be a huge barrier for communications once that's lost. And so they need to get it back really quickly. And one way back is transparency. And in Hawaii, there are really two barriers to that transparency right now. Um, The open records law has been suspended. 
during the pandemic. So reporters like us and normal people can't really request information from the state agencies. You can submit a request, but the agency has no deadline to respond because Governor David Ige says the state agencies aren't fully operational due to COVID. And, you know, some law experts in the area, he says that it's hard to trust what's going on when you can't actually get any information that you want or need to understand policy decisions, which is why, you know, we have these open record laws in the first place. And then another reason, which is a little bit similar, is staffing issues. And to put it in perspective, one Department of Health spokeswoman handled daily requests from 25 local reporters, and I'm guilty of sending, you know, multiple emails a day. And these span over 10 different local news outlets, plus national and international media requests. House of Representatives Speaker Scott Psyche worried that the Department of Health wasn't even collecting the data that he wanted about asymptomatic carriers and if infected people were wearing masks after his questions were repeatedly unanswered by the department. But to give credit where it's due, DOH late on Friday unveiled a new data dashboard with a lot more information. It's not completed yet, and a lot of information is still labeled as coming soon, but they did push that out late last week. And, you know, even though we're seeing Health Director Bruce Anderson retire and state epidemiologist Sarah Park take leave, these are two people who have really bared the brunt of the blame, aside from Governor Ige, for Hawaii's COVID-19 response. Hawaii Pacific Health Ray Barra and UH economist Carl Bonham both said it's really due to a culture in state government that predates COVID-19. And if we don't fix that, we're still going to have problems with public trust. Bonham says... What's happened with Hawaii in COVID-19 going from, you know, one to two cases a day to triple digits is really the price of this dysfunctional government culture. The community and the culture in our bureaucracies, and we failed at all levels, from the very top all the way down to people who are deciding to gather for lunch in a lunchroom. That's what we have to change. We have to change it at all levels. You know, the governor hasn't acknowledged any leadership failures from his administration, but he says he's working to create more accountability and transparency and with the departure of Director Anderson. And the information release Friday is part of that. But will it be enough? I guess we'll see. All right. We'll have to see if we can, in fact, you know, cut through some of this red tape and, uh, and if the department will be more transparent going forward. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thanks. That was HPR's Ashley Mizuo. To find her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. On the Long View today, we talked spirituality. Neil Milner joins us live this morning. How are you? Good morning, Neil. Yes. So I'm thinking of that Let It Be song, the Beatles song, In Times of Trouble, Mother Mary Comes to Me. Well, yeah, although Let It Be is really not uh, the thing that, that this article is about. It's about when people no longer have anything available to them to deal with the, the terror of uh, and the tragedy of um, the COVID pa- uh, pandemic. Uh, when, when people die uh, and you can't go to their funerals, when you can't visit close family when they're sick, um, when after they die you're not quite sure what to do, it turns out that, and this shouldn't be too much of a, a surprise, that Lots of people turn towards spiritualists, towards psychic mediums. And this piece by Colin Dickey is very good because it's not about those kinds of people being bizarre, which generally spiritualists are not. They're kind of middle-class folks like you and me. And people going to them because they believe in such weird stuff, they go to them because it's a way to recover something that has that has been lost that communicating trying to make contact with people as they say on the other side through a spirit medium lots of people turn toward the spirit medium to try to do this because every other way that they would normally deal with saying goodbye to someone is just disappeared 
in the coronavirus thing if you lost someone in, in coronavirus. So Dickey's piece is good because it helps us understand what, what people have lost as much as why they've turned to spirit mediums uh, as a way to do it. He interviewed a bunch of them in, um, in New York City, in, in the greater New York City area. Um, and they talk about their clients, and they talk about the fact that they definitely have seen more people come to them about making contact with loved ones since the pandemic. And they say on the past experiences, like 9-11, that it will increase, that, that lots of people at first, I suppose you think something like PTSD, at first you don't have the uh, reaction to trauma, and then later on you find yourself bereft and rootless, and then, and then you, you turn to them. So that's pretty much what it was about, and I thought that it was an important factor to understand about another way that uh, the COVID pandemic has really taken things that we normally take for granted, like closeness and so on, and um, destroyed them and leaving people with nothing else out there. Now, you found this article uh, on uh, uh, this uh End of the World Review, which I thought was interesting. I went and looked at it. Uh, you know, but it is a, it's a way to be able for us to be able to, I guess, express our grief when when, um, you know, our our regular rituals have been disrupted. Well, that's right, for sure. And there's two, there are two things under, to understand, one of which is that as as one of the uh, spiritualists says, or actually, as, as Dickie describes it, the spiritualism in these situations provides what Dickey says is a narrative of solace. You know, you, you're feeling terrible. You're feeling bereft. You lost a loved one without ever being able to say goodbye. You know, those horrible photos of people saying goodbye over a cell phone to someone who's, you know, barely, barely conscious. This gives you another narrative to try to talk about it and to... Reaching to someone on the other side is, you know, it, it may sound bizarre to some. It's certainly not to a lot of other people, but that's what happens. And and one of the spiritualists said, I get a lot of healthcare workers, workers that have gone through the trauma of, of treating COVID in these terribly traumatic situations here, primarily in New York, in New York City. And they, it turns out that they need something to process what they're going through and the terrible feelings that they have. And this is, this is the way that many of them have chosen to do it. And, and historically, he goes back and, and looks at the different times, yes. right, where, where people have turned to this for, for well, like you said, for Well, he mentions solace. briefly maybe the most well-known uh, practitioner of them all, although you think of him as the Sherlock Holmes writer, and that's Sir Alfred uh, Conan Doyle. Who did it? But yeah, he goes back and he, he shows that historically, when when Americans, for example, have had to deal with a kind of mass death in a very different sort of uh, matter, a super tragic sort of matter, like the Civil War, there was a lot of turn toward uh, spiritualism because your loved one died somewhere else. You know, your your young son or you know or niece or nephew whatever died somewhere else there was no proper way to bury him there was no connection at the end there was none of this solace that you're used to about the morality of suffering um, you just were out there and so people turned to spiritualism to you know to help them get through it right it's therapy their way of getting it is it, it is therapy i guess um, and uh, you know if therapy in the in the broadest sense whatever gets you through and um for you know these the people who who go there to a spiritualist are generally not worrying about being duped um they're fine with the possibility that they actually make contact with a loved one quote somewhere else on the other side i guess you know, when people hear psychic, you know, you think of just the stereotypes, you know, that you see on TV and the movies, and you and you do worry about people falling prey to folks uh, yeah. in a vulnerable time. Sure, that's true. But if you really look into where psychics practice and what they practice like, most of them don't look like that. Most of them don't do that. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of people who are listening right now have gone to psychics and may even know someone who... When I say claims to be a psychic, that's, you know, it's not like, um, 
River City is going to have a boys band kind of thing. It, it means that they, they think they have that, that kind of power. Psychics, people who, who consider themselves psychic, sort of are pretty well distributed throughout the population. That's what some of the research has shown. But, yeah, you know, the ones that, that I know about, there used to be a, a very uh, popular one in, um, actually in, in Kaimuki for a while, and I think she moved somewhere else. All kinds of very smart, educated people went there. She certainly wasn't, you know, didn't do the Swami thing. Um, but uh, it's, it's always been a part of even rational Western society. Well, these are certainly, you know, very strange times, and, um, you know, people have this need uh, to grieve, and we'll reach out in different ways to, to kind of get that solace. To, sure. Know, get I mean, if you think about it in another way, even the religious rituals that are available to you, you know, if you're, uh, let's say, a fairly devout Christian, those get interrupted in ways now. That's why there was so much pressure from churches to reopen in person again, because the kinds of religious rituals that you have depend on a sort of closeness. They depend on a kind of predictable way of, of doing things. And again, you go back to the funeral. Every religion, you know, well, the, most religions, probably every religion, have some kind of funeral ritual. And you're pretty much de deprived of that if you're, you know, in, in the kind of situation, especially in what the, what the menace was in New York City where these spiritualists that were interviewed practiced. And you had some experience uh, there in New York City. Well, I had some experience elsewhere. I, I was doing a project a few years ago where uh, this was actually about 20 years ago. Now, I got interested in... in um, alternative medicine, and, and again, not so much to find out whether psychics are off-the-body healers, whether it, quote, really works or not. I figure you have to suspend that disbelief just to try to figure out what they say about their work. And um, for the most part, they would have no trouble understanding or practicing in this kind of situation that, that, they, that they have. They, one of the things that a lot of them would talk about is that is that you have to that if you're open to this possibility, um, spiritualism works better. So that's I mean that's one side. That's a kind of the exotic side. The other side of it is that in certain places like uh, in England, a lot of it started to become sort of regulated. For example, you needed to have a code of ethics like a, 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 a spiritual healers, uh, for example, in, in London. If you wanted to be part of the National Health Service, there are certain things that you had to do that sound a lot like professional regulation. Um, it's just that it's you know it you know it, it just look sounds different when you think about well okay doctors have uh, have ethics we understand that codes of ethics mm -hmm. how you proceed but psychics or spiritualists the answer is the answer is. To the extent that they want to be part of a mainstream society, they tend to be like that. And, and I think you can understand more about the New York spiritualists that are in this thing and their clients by thinking about how much alike, how, how not different both the clients and the, and the spiritual practitioners are than right. how they're different. All right, yeah, interesting issue. But thanks so much, Neil. Welcome. Take care of yourself. All Okay, bye. That was our regular contributing analyst, retired political science professor, Neil Milner. already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. 
You know, all this week we are celebrating Ulu. We introduced you to a baker yesterday who's discovering what's possible for a fruit that just keeps giving. And today you get to meet who many consider the mother of the breadfruit movement for Diane Ragoni. Her passion for Ulu started with a college research paper. She divides her time between Kauai and Maui, uh, where she, for decades, she's worked as the director of the Breadfruit Institute at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, where numerous varieties of Ulu grow. I became involved in breadfruit knowing nothing about it. I moved to Hawaii in 1979, and then I sampled it once, and then I was a graduate student at the University of Hawaii in the horticulture department, interested in tropical fruits, and I decided to write a paper for a class on breadfruit in, in Tahiti, where it's an important center, and it was from that term paper, that paper I wrote, where I went to the UH Library, which has this incredible collection, the Pacific Collection, and found all this wonderful, interesting information about breadfruit, its uses, the cultural, the historical aspect. And from that, I decided that is what I wanted to do for my PhD. I wanted to study breadfruit varieties in the Pacific Islands. So what is it about the history, I think, that you've, you've just found, I guess, the, the most interesting? The history I found so interesting was just how widely grown breadfruit was throughout the Pacific Islands and how important it was culturally and as a staple food for so many Pacific Islanders for centuries. And the thing that interested me at that time, because it was so new to me, was I was interested in plant introductions. And so the thing about breadfruit was there was interest right in the 1920s and then again right after World War II from botanists and, and scientists recognizing that traditional crops and cultivation practices in the Pacific Islands were at risk and that varieties of breadfruit and other crops were in danger of disappearing. And so I approached it from that perspective, this need to collect and conserve and document breadfruit diversity. Did they have much uh, at Bishop Museum that uh, you know you could you know, use in, in your research? Bishop Museum has, has had excellent resources as well, but mostly with the University of Hawaii, the, the library collections there, because they have a lot of agriculture-related materials that the Bishop Museum would not have. And Hawaii has one variety of breadfruit traditionally, so it's fascinating for me to learn that there were places in the Pacific that had documented 50, 60, even 100 varieties of breadfruit. And then you, you, you've tasted them all, and uh, you have favorites. <laughs> so my work was not just to collect the varieties and document them, but to collect propagating material, because it was a conservation effort to conserve these traditional varieties. So I planted the trees at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, Kahanu Garden, Maui, and over the years as the trees grew and started fruiting, we were able to you know, document and do research on the collection, but yes, I harvested and sampled the different, uh, different varieties to see what they were like. Uh, so every time I would go to Hana, I live on Kauai, I would harvest three, four, five different varieties and just steam them and cook them and eat them and see how they tasted. So, And your favorites? Uh, my favorites, is it like picking which child's your favorite? Um, I have three to three to five favorites. So there are um, a couple of them are Samoan varieties. One is called Puo, and it's a variety that's been in Hawaii for at least 100 years. There's another Samoan variety called Ma'afala, and that's a variety I like very much. They're both very flavorful. They are very, both very nutritious. There's a very unusual variety that I w was able to rescue from an abandoned breadfruit conservation collection in Samoa. It's from Rotuma, and its name is Ulufiti, which means from Fiji. And then there are a couple of the Micronesian varieties that are, um, Lame, you're from Guam, Lamay? Uh, Lamay. Lamay, um, the Micronesian varieties from um, mainly Ponape and Chuk. In 2011, with the Hawaii Homegrown Food Network, the Breadfruit Institute launched a program called Ha'ulu Ka'ulu to revitalize breadfruit in Hawaii. So we did festivals on, five festivals on two islands, many workshops, cooking demonstrations, and so a way to encourage and make people more aware of breadfruit and, and also making trees available. So 
you know, and getting the nurseries to propagate trees. So that was an important part of it too. You have to have the trees available. So tens of thousands of trees have been planted in Hawaii in the past decade through these efforts. And now all these people now have access to fruit they didn't before. And so the farmers need entrepreneurs, they need businesses to develop products. So that's what we're seeing now through these cook-offs and these other activities, entrepreneurs like Tom and other people throughout Hawaii are starting, and chefs, can't forget the chefs, are using breadfruit and putting it on their menus. People are making products. So we're seeing new novel food products and seeing breadfruit used in restaurants and more in homes. And the thing that's most dear to my heart is, is this economic development is so important. We need to diversify agriculture in Hawaii, and this is an important cultural crop that could do so. But local family and community food security and self-sufficiency and having more breadfruit trees planted in more yards and more communities like the Haula community, where then a family can harvest and eat fruit and excess fruit they can give to their friends or their families, sell it so there, that there is that local abundance, not just a commercial opportunity. Now, I grew up eating breadfruit with coconut milk, just baked, and uh, that's that, I think, and maybe chips is really the only way I've had it, but to have the bread today, the bagels, the pizza, I mean, it, it just takes it to a whole nother level. You know, the hummus, uh, you know, all these wonderful you know, the spreads. It, it really is, it's amazing what you can do with it. It is, it's such a versatile crop because I can't think of anything like it. If you think about it, it's a potato on a tree when it's at starchy, mature stage, and you can do so much with it. You, a pa and the pastries and the breads, as well as a starch and a pasta substitute. But when it's small and immature, it's a completely different food. And that's when you can marinate it and make pickles out of it. But then it is a fruit. So it turns soft and sweet and ripe and creamy. And at that stage, you can do completely different things with it. So it's usable at every stage of development. And all it takes is kind of playing around with it and creativity to make things out of it. Gosh, where would you like to see this go? I mean, you've got folks on different islands that are experimenting with it. I think you had mentioned in one of the breadfruit summits, they talked about skincare products. Well, we're at, the, I think, at the beginning of really looking at breadfruit as, as more than just a backyard crop. But I think it's very important that it also remain and that it be a backyard crop. But for economic development, commercialization, yes, you do need more people growing it. Is flour a feasible thing to do with it with the cost of production and the labor involved in making flour? Is it a feasible product to make in Hawaii? A lot of people are interested in breadfruit flour because it is gluten-free, but breadfruit is gluten-free. So you don't have to turn it into flour to get the gluten-free benefits. So you'll see from what Tom is doing here at the bakery, he's not using flour. He's not taking it to the step of making flour. He's processing the mature starchy fruit and using it as his, his dough base. There's another business owner, I guess, down the way from here that I hear is making vodka. Yeah, there's someone making vodka. So with every crop and as you're using it, there will be you know, challenges of the supply chain and supply and demand. So the Hawaii Ulu Cooperative on the Big Island, and they're growing and they're, explore, they're exploring all, what, what does it take you know, to, to get that supply chain. So there are things for Hawaii that will be appropriate and feasible and scalable island by island. And then for the Pacific, it is, you know, conserving these traditional varieties and replanting and growing breadfruit in these traditional systems and farming more breadfruit. And then in other parts of the world, there's a lot of interest in breadfruit. And so I would like to see hundreds of thousands of breadfruit trees planted around the world and people using and growing more breadfruit. I guess the big question that I always get just from uh, friends or neighbors, you know, they see this in the market or someone gives it to them and they're like, what do I do with this thing? Well, that is, there's that fear factor. And I, I frequently give our workshops and the festivals and other events presentations on, on breadfruit. How do you, how do you handle it? And so it's, it's that educational component of what we did through the Ha'ulu Ka'ulu project and the Hawaii Homegrown Food Network is what kind of informational resource materials to make available. You know, we did a breadfruit cookbook. We did a breadfruit production guide. 
fact sheets and informational resources like that. So it's that educational piece about what to do with it. And I think the most important thing is to pick the fruit, harvest the fruit at the right stage of development and handle it that way. And right, so right now I have three breadfruit that were picked about three days ago and I wasn't ready to cook them. So sometimes if I have room in my refrigerator, I will put a breadfruit in the, in the fridge. And I had one in there, the Ulufiti, for more than a week. And when I pulled it out, the skin was all brown, but it was fine. It was still firm and starchy. So that's one way to slow down the, it getting soft. And also there wasn't the sticky sap that can be on a fruit. But this week I have three fruit that I'm not ready to cook until this weekend. So when I brought them home, I just put them in a plastic bag in a small trash can. I filled that trash can with water and had a nice blue ice pack. So I put that in there to cool it a little bit and then covered it up. And those fruits, as long as there's no air in there, as long as you can put a weight on them so they are covered, they'll last three, four days in water. And that a traditional way you'll see that in the Pacific Islands people will store put breadfruit in water for a day or two to three so when I pull those out there'll be no sticky sap or latex on them and I'll just you know steam them up and do something with them it is an amazing fruit though it really is so what's next for you a book what's next for me is yes uh, it's really like to start focusing a lot more on writing and writing a couple of scientific papers that are kind of a culmination of a lot of the research I've been doing for almost a decade with a collaborator. But then books, I'd really like to write. I was going to write one book, but then I decided, well, yeah, I actually have three books, so I just need to start with that first one. And then helping continue on with this you know, breadfruit movement that's happened in Hawaii and around the world. Okay, well, we'll look forward to your books. Haha, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And that was a conversation we had with uh, many regard as the mother of the breadfruit movement, Diane Rangoni. Uh, there are many people uh, like Diane in Hawaii who want to put ulu on the map, creating ulu festivals and more. Some are working toward an international stage, the World Expo in Dubai uh, that was to happen next month. Uh, because of COVID-19, that exhibition has now been postponed to 2021. But some believe the power of ulu would fit into the theme of connecting minds in creating our future. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we will take you to the Big Island where we hear from the Ulu Cooperative. It's a hui of Ulu farmers making breadfruit available to all. Got an Ulu story? Color Talk Back Line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for the conversation.